0: Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview Treasury professionals about their Treasury careers. Each and every week I speak to treasurers about how they built their careers, where they are now, and where they see both themselves and the Treasury profession going to next. This week's show, tonight will be joined by Stephen Medhurst, Director of Treasury Omnicom, based in the UK. But Omnicom are actually a global leader in marketing communications and advertising services. 5,000 clients in over 100 countries, originally formed in 86, with a combination of three other advertising groups, which Steve will explain a bit later in our chat. But since then, they've just grown and grown and grown. And they're one of the top performers in the Fortune 500. Steve's actually based in London. Steve originally joined NatWest before university, then went another banking role, but then he discovered the world of treasury, which he'll explain a bit more. And then in 98, he joined Omnicom. That's enough from me, as I say, every week in the show. Steve, perhaps uh, talk us through how you first discovered, well, finance and then treasury and how you then created your treasury career.
1: Okay. Thanks, Mike. Good to be on the call with you. Let's start at the beginning, shall we, in terms of how I got into treasury, because it wasn't a direct line. It was a bit of a circuitous route. But started post-university by joining National Westminster Bank, which was National Westminster Bank in those days before it got uh, bought up and became part of the... RBS group. I'd actually done a history degree. So I'd sort of studied humanities, arts. I've done a modern history degree. And in those days, universities used to have large mill grounds, so a lot of large companies from finance, retail, manufacturing, marketing, all came knocking at the door. And I felt I needed to get a good training program under my belt. And in those days, the banks used to have very good training programs. So I, I decided to join National Westminster Bank, I'm actually joining their retail division. I was working in various parts of the southeast of England for three and a half years. Very interesting training, which when I look back, was invaluable at the time. It was a little bit frustrating, hence after three three and a bit years, decided to move on and actually moved into a role with a large Japanese bank, dealing with um, Japanese corporate customers who were expanding their operations in the UK. So that was more of an international banking, money markets, foreign exchange, trade finance, and working with them. She had a very good time there, good experience, great learning, interesting cultural differences, which I found very interesting and enjoyable, but decided after that to take a year out and do a full-time MBA. So I actually went and studied for a full-time MBA in uh, City, City University and from there actually came out and joined ICI, which in those days was one of the large FTSE 100 companies, very well respected. Actually, for various reasons, didn't go into a finance role initially, but went into what they used to call their organization and employee development group Mm. because they had some very interesting programs and processes. I was involved in in looking at management development. We were looking at implementing a competence-based approach for global recruitment and executive development. So I was working on that for two or three years, which was fascinating, a bit of a diversion, but absolutely fascinating working across the organization. But for some of those who are old enough, they may recall that at the time ICI was a big company, but in the early 90s, it was under pressure because the enterprise value seemed to be much higher than the share value. So there was talk about unbundling, demerging. There was a large strategy group put together to look at the future of the the group. And ultimately, that led to a decision to demerge. The pharmaceuticals and biosciences division from the core chemicals division. And as part of that thinking, um, there were opportunities in treasury. So I moved back into treasury or back into treasury and um, given my finance background and spent several years in the ICI treasury. Now, in those days, it was a phenomenal place, very much a corporate treasury, uh, looking at corporate exposures. But essentially, I would suggest something, you know, champions league player in the treasury world, in fact, I saw something come across my desk the other day that said the ACT was formed in 1979. One of the founding members was the ex-CFO from ICI. But ICI in those days had a very busy and active treasury, had large exposures. Essentially, a lot of the commodities were priced in dollars. A lot of manufacturing was in the UK or Europe and sales were global. So a lot of foreign exchange exposure, very actively managed the debt program, staged in the cycle. We had substantial cash. We're managing investments. So very active and interesting treasury to be in. And then actually the demerger happened, which was a great experience, although at the time it didn't feel like it some days because it was absolutely hectic. We ended up having to do all sorts of things in terms of refinancing the group when we spun off the pharmaceuticals business, which became Zeneca. A lot of the debt stayed in the old ICI. We had to refinance that debt on a short-term basis because it was part of a divestment program all over the world. So we were looking to get the proceeds to the divestment. Um, so we did some very innovative things in terms of how we financed that debt on a short to medium term um, while that divestment program went through. So it was a very, very interesting time. And when you look back on your career, you know, those sort of opportunities don't come along that often. But it was a tremendous learning experience.
0: I was going to say, before we move on to Omnicon with ICI, how was it, you know, those were the early days, as you say, of treasury? You know, you talked about being a member and things like that. Are those principles still the same? You know, when you were still in, you know, early stage treasuries, if you like, you know, less of the technology, less of all the other stuff, so maybe more manual and things, but the actual principles were the same? And was it still about the relationships and everything else? That's very interesting. question. Uh, I guess fundamentally, yes,
1: in terms of principles, in terms of how you manage risk and exposure would be very similar, although not as sophisticated, anywhere near as sophisticated as we are now, or a lot of treasuries are now. This was very much a corporate treasury, so uh, it was externally facing. So a lot of what the treasury was doing then would still be, you know, current treasuries would be doing very similar things as you say the key difference would be the technology or the process has become a lot more automated there's a lot more intelligence being applied to it um, so it's far less manual when we looked at things like you know long-term interest swaps for example we used to do a calculation on a Lotus notes to actually work out the net present value and you know the pricing of all these things so in that sense the world's moved on hugely but in, in terms of in essence what you're trying to achieve I would say very little has changed in a lot of respects just the way you do it it's become a lot smarter
0: and then, As you say, you you then made the move and joined Omnicom at the time. with, With that move, how did that come about? What was it like? Were you straight in as Senior VP of Treasury or what happened? Yeah,
1: interesting. I worked for ICI for almost 10 years. And at that stage, the chemicals business was shrinking. So it wasn't a great environment to work in we were always chasing our tails on various things. It was becoming more and more difficult. Um, So I'd started to look around and actually someone came up with an opportunity at Omnicom. Now, in all honesty, I'd never heard of Omnicom. So I did a little bit of research very interesting company, still very new at that stage, still only being put together, as you mentioned in your in your introduction in 1986. But large, growthful, very different sector. Uh, it seemed like a very interesting opportunity. Went and had a chat, and the, and the more I met with people, and the more you know spoke to them, thought it was certainly worth taking the risk of moving from ICI to Omnicom, which was in so many ways a very different organisation.
0: What was it like there? What was the size of Omnicom then, as opposed to now? How has it sort of grown? In the treasury function, it was about
1: six or seven people, so it wasn't that large. And that that treasury function in London covered Europe, really didn't have that much interaction outside of EMEA. And even in EMEA, it was really mostly the core European countries, so really didn't cover that much of Middle East or Africa at that stage. But six or seven people were a US company, so the head office and the corporate treasurer sit in the US, and he had set up uh, the treasury center about three years before, so very shortly after the company was formed. He wanted a a treasury function and very different in terms of very much more an in-house banking model of treasury. So very much focused or trained at looking at our agencies and how we interacted with our agencies and essentially a a core focus on um, cash management and liquidity management, but hugely different to ICI. Still in its very early stages, not very sophisticated, very manual processes, you know, still trying to impose itself um, within the group. Which is a very decentralised group. So, try to provide support across all the business divisions in you know a number of countries. So, it was really still in the early days, although you know it had been set up. Our lady called Caroline Shuffley had done a phenomenal job in setting it up and establishing it. It really needed to build, which is why I joined part of that building to make it more effective through through the group. It was a bit like the Wild West, if I'm very honest with you, Mike. It was um, coming from a very structured, process-oriented environment to, to someone like Omnicom. And I have to say, after the first sort of few weeks, I did
0: go home and speak to my wife
1: and said, I'm not sure what I've done here. <laughs> but looking back now, it was the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. And that's, well, just just for the listeners out there, that's uh, 21 years ago. You know, you, You've hung on in there sort of thing. And when you say it was sort of a bit Wild West, what then followed? What were the sort of structures that that came in and how did it grow sort of thing from there? You know, the starting point in our
1: business, and and our business is is very much a a short-term cash-driven business. So at the heart of what the Treasury does is cash and liquidity management. So we needed to put in place proper cash management structures, pooling-type structures where we could get access to the funds that provide a conduit for all the cash to be able to be managed at a central basis. So we started very early in putting in place cash management structures, certainly across the major markets. We actually, after a year or so, since I joined, we decided that we'd actually split Europe into the Eurozone, because don't forget, back in 98, that was uh, pre the Euro, so we decided we'd actually set up a Dublin office to manage the Eurozone, and the London office would cover everything else outside the Eurozone, so part of my role was to help establish the Dublin office and to to work with them to put these structures in place across all of the uh, key Eurozone countries while at the same time we were looking at those countries outside the Eurozone, increasingly we were pushing out um, garages into places like the Middle East, and then we started to look at Asia as well. So at the heart of what we were doing, and are still doing now in diff- different ways, was to put in place global cash management structures.
0: And with that, and, and sort of looking at as the team grew and you took on more, how did Omnicom change? You know, how was it that then, because you know, the business was growing rapidly, you know, you look back over the time, what what was happening?
1: Yeah, Omnicom's I mean, had a very, a very interesting journey. And in that 21 years, the company's probably, well, has tripled in size, certainly in terms of revenue. And it's grown through a combination of acquisitive and organic growth. So the group's grown. The group's become a lot more structured. In our world, we were very, very decentralized, distributed organization. Uh, we have something like 1,500 legal entities around the world. So a lot of small to medium enterprises, which all add up to a consolidated Omnicom balance sheet. So it's a bit like herding cats. So, so part of our role was to try and establish the disciplines across all of the networks, and networks in our, in our language as business divisions. And you also have to remember in, in the Omnicom world, which is not dissimilar to our peer groups, WPPs, the interpublics, the Publicis, etc. a lot of those business divisions actually compete with each other so they'd been used to running on a very autonomous basis. There were issues of confidentiality about information and, you know, having sight of what other businesses in the group were doing. Over the years, we've had to establish those structures. We've had to establish process around those things and create order out of some of the chaos that was going on. We've had to look at, you know, controlling banking and bank accounts. We've had to look at how we get, you know, full visibility of the cash on a daily basis. And bearing in mind, even now, we have still have over two thousand six hundred bank accounts, which is a lot. But we probably closed in the last twenty odd years at least two two and a half thousand. So we probably closed at least half the accounts we had when we started this exercise.
0: And when you when you say that, I I talked to Dan Ferguson, and you and I talked about this last week that at Royal Sun Alliance and and he was as she says on the podcast he was embarrassed at the number of different bank accounts he had. But as he said, he said you might be stranded in the middle of an African country and then you reach out to your insurer and say, I need help. You know, I need to go to the local bank and that's why you need those local relationships. Now when you and I spoke again recently, we talked about this and the fact that was you have to have this many bank accounts for a few different reasons, one of which being not only access to cash, but also access to services. You might have one overarching global bank for yourselves, but they can't provide services in different countries. Now, without me doing all that, perhaps you can explain for some of the listeners who are thinking, oh, we have to do that, or yeah, we're gonna try and rationalize to six banks globally and stuff. Perhaps if you could talk to that, if you like, and explain to people why you guys can't do that, if you like. Uh, Yeah, very interesting question again. And, and we have a lot of banks in our relationship group.
1: And we, at the moment, we're running an old fashioned relationship model, um, which says those who participate in the revolving credit facility are therefore relationship banks. So there are currently 34 banks in our relationship group. So we do have a lot of banks. But even then, we still had to go outside that group for a number of reasons. Now, typically, if you think about how our agencies are set up, these are as I say, generally small to medium-sized enterprises in their own right, and they need a service on the ground wherever that ground is around the world. So while we have a global relationship with a bank, we're looking for a bank who can provide a a service locally. Most of the business they do is business to business, but they're still looking for certain transaction types, certain payment methodologies that some of the big international banks can't provide in certain markets. Now, typically, when we look at, at a banking landscape, there are reasons why we'd go outside of the banking group. And those would be because of payroll or payroll related. So in certain jurisdictions, for example, Brazil, the big international banks that we're trying to deal with really couldn't provide a payroll service in Brazil. So we've we've left it with one of the big local banks, similarly in Russia. Going back a few years, although that's changing now, you know, the payroll providers just weren't in the market and it was be very expensive on the basis that a lot of a lot of Russian employees would take cash out of the ATM. And unless you had a large ATM net network, it was costing a fortune employees to go and take cash out of a out of their ATM machine. So in that sense you had to plug into a local bank. So payroll would be one reason we look at, at at local banks taxes from certain jurisdictions around the world. And again that's changing and in the last you know few months it's changed a bit, but certainly India and China uh, would be two markets where uh, you needed local bank accounts for various tax payments. You know India's only changed this year. In China there are still one or two issues depending on where you operate and who you're dealing with. And the other reason in our world would be clients because a lot of our clients are the big financial institutions, banks, etc. So while we may, you know, in a certain country uh, have one of our other global banks there, if we've got a client relationship, we will permit accounts to be open with that client, provided that, that any cash is moved to the pooling bank, and therefore we have access to the cash on a daily basis. So there are a number of reasons why it's just not feasible or practical to use one of your large. Global providers, and even when we've got as many banks as we have, and a lot of those banks are international banks who've got strength in a lot of the markets we operate in, even where we have a bank who's got perceived strength in some of those markets, they just can't provide the level of service our agencies expect or should get, quite frankly. So we do have to go outside of that group.
0: Steve, for the listeners, again, we we, when we had this practical discussion, you you touched on it there about India, and one of the things you, I I certainly realised was you know the number of districts and you could only go to your district and they're a phenomenal amount out there and, and having, having sort of a diverse structure out there if you like can, can you just maybe explain that for the people because again there'll be some you know some of a lot of our listeners are from the us and perhaps have less exposure that far across you know they they're used to more local arrangements and things with, within the us network but you know maybe explain that as well if you would because india is one of those markets which just has its own challenges
1: or differences. Um, And things have changed in India. Now, I need to check my facts here, but I think there are 37 states in India. And going back to last year, they all had their own tax regimes. So there were different state taxes on certain goods and services. And those taxes were payable in the local state. And bearing in mind some of the states uh, were fairly remote, you you had to have a bank account with a bank who could make those tax payments to the local designated Uh, bank uh, the state collected that cash. There were some very difficult issues with that. Now, last year, they introduced uh, a national goods and sales tax, which took away a lot of those state differences. And in fact, in the last 12 months, there's been a lot of work so the international banks can actually make those payments to those designated state tax banks. So it's still not completely there, but certainly if you go back more than a year, it was a very, very difficult place to operate. And in our business, Although most of our offices are located in three of the major cities, uh, we had a very large field sales force of over 10,000 staff in India who were operating across the whole of the country. It was a very sort of interesting problem we had to do because we had to make these tax payments in almost all of those 37 states. Mm -hmm. And although they weren't large amounts, it was just a vexatious problem we had to find solutions for. And at the time, it meant opening up a number of accounts just to pay those state taxes.
0: You're such a global brand. Can you just explain to our listeners, if you would, that although you're from the UK, what regions do you actually cover? You know, everything outside of the US, basically?
1: Yes. Um, you know, as part of the growth of, of Omnicom, but also the Treasury, essentially we've we've got a US-based Treasury and an international Treasury. So we have offices in London and Dublin, and the London and Dublin covers literally everything outside of North America. Now, our definition of North America isn't the Donald Trump definition because it includes Mexico, the U.S. and Canada, um, but we're essentially covering uh, everywhere outside of that, so other parts of Latin or South America, EMEA, Asia, Pacific regions, so quite a large sort of global reach in terms of our operations here.
0: And how many in the team, in London in particular, and and London stroke Dublin, and then Again, we talked about this, about the sort of structure of the team, because it's quite a fracture, which obviously presents its own challenges in terms of coaching staff and keeping them staying on for a period of time. So maybe talk that through for you.
1: Yeah, currently the global treasury, as I say, the treasurer sits in the US. There's a team of about 20 people in the US. There are a team of now 20 people in London and 10 in Dublin. So across London and Dublin, we have 30 people. The way that's structured, I so say, at the heart of the Treasury centres, there's a focus on um, cash management. So we have two or three people working on cash management, and cash management is not not just the daily, you know, positioning reconciliations. It's all at the back end, all the intercompany uh, reconciliations, because an in-house bank, you know, all our systems generate, you know, intercompany uh, balance movements. So it's all the checking of that. So we have a number of people working on that. Outside of that, the various treasury centers tend to have specializations. So, for example, London is the global center for our foreign exchange activity. All the global foreign exchange that we do um, on behalf of the group or the agencies in the group is done in London, and London's also the center for grandly call it, asset management, but it's, it's investing our surplus cash. So, you know, like a lot of American organizations, we sit on a bit of a surplus cash balance. So we're investing that in the moment, that's been about $1.5 billion that's being invested. The Dublin team, in addition to cash management, are actually do a lot of administration around global leasing programs. So in our world, we lease everything basically, buildings, furniture, technology. We don't purchase assets, we lease assets. So Dublin ministers a lot of our global leasing programs. Uh, it's also our data center for all the global bank account reporting that we do. So we have daily end of day balance reporting on all 2,600 bank accounts around the world. And it's increasingly becoming a center of expertise on some of the tax-related matters, particularly transfer pricing, which has become, over the last few years, a much bigger deal for an organization like ours. And then the U.S. Treasury focuses on managing the balance sheet, so debt and equity mix. They also coordinate a global program where we manage, monitor and manage working capital for the group. Um, when you look at our balance sheet on the asset side, we have cash, trade receivables, goodwill, which um, is offset on the liability side by trade payables, debt, and equity. Basically, so uh, working capital is a very big function within treasury. And over the last few years, we've bought in global insurance programs. So the global insurance programs are now managed primarily out of the U.S. But we provide support out of London for some of those global insurance programs as well. So in London, we have essentially five different teams. You know, a finance team cash management team, foreign exchange team, what we call a regional team to look at issues like, you know, the Indian issue we referred to. And then we have a sort of administration team as well. In Dublin, it's essentially three teams, a cash management team, a leasing team,
0: a reporting team. And in terms of the London-based teams, you and I have spoken about the structure of those and the level of people coming in. And you've got the progression there in the in the team, but it's a wrong way to say it's limited, but there was only so far you can go because of the nature of the work that you guys actually do at Omnicom. Yeah. You know, perhaps explain to the listeners how do you cope with that? How do you coach the people? And I know you provide study support and try to get those people up through the ranks. And for people coming up with a relatively fresh start in Treasury, who then to move on to a certain level and then a lot of your guys have gone far and wide, which is obviously a very positive thing, you know, perhaps you can talk to the listeners about your ethos as a manager, coach, and maybe as a leader within the team as if you would. In the London team, we have currently of that twenty, seven junior
1: analysts. Um, so these are entry level jobs. So we recruit a lot of people at the entry level, who come in either straight from university or with a little bit of work experience. So there's a large number of those entry level, graduate jobs, and we'll come on to, to, to how that's going to change in terms of how we look at further automation, application of intelligence and alone artificial intelligence and some of the processes and everything. But we do have a large, a large number of those junior entry level positions. So we bring bright, bright guys in. You know, we train them, we give them a lot of responsibility. You know, there's a, there's a very good management structure, very supportive management structure. So we don't want anyone to fail, but we allow them scope uh, to come in to take responsibility to grow in the job as much as we possibly can. We encourage them definitely to do professional qualifications. So that's seven, currently five, are doing professional qualifications, a mixture of ACT and SEMA. So we're very supportive of that. But fundamentally, these are junior level jobs. So when these guys come in, it, it takes a good few months to get them up to speed and trained you know after a year or so you know they they're very good at the job and a lot of them have potential to grow the job but the job's the job quite frankly so you know we we we're, we're paying for the role not the job holder so there there comes a stage after hopefully at least 3 to 4 years where unless something else changes in the organisation they basically come in hopefully we've given them fantastic training and they've got great experience but inevitably we're going to lose those people they're going to move on as they should. So historically we've been a training ground for a lot of young smart kids and we've had a good lot of them and it's always a shame to lose them but on the other hand there comes a stage where you know you know from their career's perspective that they need to make the next step and we can't always offer that next step because there aren't the roles Available to do that, and things do change occasionally. There's not that much movement at the more senior levels, so those you know vacancies aren't being created. Um, so it's best for them and for us in many ways to move those guys through. So we've had you know a lot of people come through the Omnicom Treasury, both in London and Dublin, um, and moved on. So uh, we've got quite a big alumni around the around the world at the moment, which is no bad thing. But that's that's just a feature of of the current organisation. We're always looking to see if we can do things better or smarter. And fundamentally, one of the problems is that there's still too much manual operations, which means, you know, we need those junior analysts to come in. So we've really got to look to automate more across, you know, all of our processes, uh, which would reduce those number of jobs. But in the meantime, that's what it is. But uh, it's great when they, when they join us and it's always with mixed feelings when they come in and say they've, you know, accepted a job elsewhere because you, you know, don't want to lose them. But fundamentally, you want to wish them well and hopefully they'll continue to grow and build careers.
0: Steve, you talk about being smarter and things like that. And again, we've talked about the fact that you guys are implementing new technologies and trying to move forward. But it's not just all about technology and improving processes, is it? Perhaps you could talk about how you guys bring in technology to help. But again, when you and I met, Steve and I met recently, we talked about this and we pre-talked over our show today. We were saying that a lot of other shows we've talked about technology and technology replaces processes not people, and that you still need the people to make the technology work. again, how do you guys bring that technology to bear, as it were, but also do it with the boots on the ground? How's it work with you guys?
1: We've always been really lucky within Treasury. In our world, we're a holding company structure where every entity has profit targets, amongst other things, and that includes Treasury. So we've always been a little bit sort of self-sustaining and over the years, when the original treasurer set up the treasury function, he bought in technology experts. So we've always had a full-time technology person working within the treasury group. So over the years, we've invested an awful lot in various technologies. Whether that's for the, the the basic treasury activity, the cash management activity, the foreign exchange, whether it's some of the risk management stuff, the revaluations, mark to market, a lot of that's off the shelf. Some of it we've built, typically around things like leasing programs. We built technology. We built an internet front end for agencies to request foreign exchange transactions with treasury. So we've always invested, you know, a substantial amount in the technology, and we've always had support within the treasury group uh, or expertise within the treasury group. I guess. Where we are now in terms of how we develop that, what's tended to happen, we've tended to build an infrastructure that has a lot of standalone applications uh, for various things, which are very difficult because you're trying to manage across the piece. Even things like basic reporting, you know, we're having to sit reporting tools or business intelligence tools on top of various databases, and we're having to try and map various databases across. So one of the key themes now is to try and integrate those technologies into fewer platforms rather than have the current infrastructure we've got. So there's going to be a lot of work on simplifying the infrastructure we have and the architecture we have, a lot of work on setting business intelligence systems on top. So this afternoon, um, even I'm getting trained for a couple of hours on the latest version of our business intelligence tool we use, which is Cognos because we need to work out how we're going to deploy that more efficiently. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done there, but technology is going to hopefully substantially change a lot of our day-to-day operations. You know, I'm always intrigued when I sit in peer groups and people talk about how they're applying artificial intelligence to certain things. And that may be as simple as just, you know, positioning and moving cash around the world. It may be, you know, in terms of investment strategies, they're way ahead of us and, and we've got a bit of a catch-up to do there. But we're in a good position to do it because we've got the building blocks and the foundation stones uh, in place. We just need to do some work and, and really push hard to simplify that structure and to get consistency across, across all of our various applications we're using and to then to start using these uh, business intelligence tools in a much smarter way.
0: But Steve, you you're looking back over your number of years within Treasury, two years now, and you know, you've looked to your profession and everything else. And there are other people, you know, perhaps coming up through, you know, maybe members of the team or, you know, more junior members of staff and they look at it and say, Do you know what, I'd like to have a similar background to Steve. Are there any tips that you would, you know, to summarize and finish off today's show that you think, do you know what, sitting back, this is what you should do as a professional?
1: Let's start with something that's probably not a tip because I would have to say, you know, where I sit now, I've been very fortunate. I've enjoyed a lot of what I've done. I've been very lucky to work for different companies, but to learn an awful lot and to keep learning. And, and I guess one of the things in any career is there has to be an element of luck. I was particularly lucky to join ICI at the time I did and was particularly lucky to join Omnicom at the time I did. I've also been very lucky over the years in working for some very, very smart people and working with some very, very smart people. So, But when you talk about tips, you know, one of the things I'd say is that um, within Treasury, and I say Treasury is a, a, a big, broad field and all Treasuries are different, but there is always something new just around the corner. And the ability to learn, to understand, to grasp, to get on top of different things. So, you know, I mentioned things like tax, you know, I didn't join Treasury to become a tax expert, but, you know, over the last four or five years in particular, you know, I probably spent 15% of my time working with a tax group on tax structurings, on, on tax issues. So there's always something new. There's always something different to learn. And the ability to sort of grasp those opportunities to learn, to be inquisitive, you know, determination to do to do the best are critical. And I know you could argue that that may be the same in any role, but I think particularly in treasury, because, you know, you're interacting with so many different people. In my role, you know, I'm interacting and I just look at, Things like emails, you know, where they're coming from, they're coming from all over the world, coming from, you know, internal, they're coming from different levels of management, there's all sorts of different issues. So having to respond, uh, think about and respond to, you know, such a wide range of issues on a daily basis without knowing, you know, what's going to happen next, because undoubtedly my role today certainly is different from, you know, a couple of years ago. It will be different in a couple of years' time. How exactly? I'm not sure. But actually embrace that sort of change, that uh, opportunity really it gives to, to grow and develop. Even at my age, Mike, there's still opportunities to grow
0: and develop. So, you know, as you say, you talk about embracing all that. You know, any other, you know, final tips you just look back?
1: I would certainly encourage people to take the professional qualifications. But I think you need, to, you need to make very careful choices about career steps as well, especially now. In, in my day, the world was a lot simpler place. So you know, when I graduated, probably you know ten to fifteen percent of people were, were were graduates. So there were jobs. A lot of my peer group, you know, joined large companies. Some of them stayed, some of them left, but there were always other jobs. I think that's increasingly tougher nowadays. And some of the old certainties around large companies—that's all changed, and mostly for the better. So you have to be thoughtful about your career choices, who you're going to join, and why you're joining them. In, increasingly now. Again, when I, when I joined, I mean, it was still, I was that last generation who theoretically had a job for life. They were paternalistic companies who had pension schemes and other programs. So I, I would, you know, speak to people and as, as we do in our team, because, you know, I wear a number of hats and sometimes some of the team will come up and they'll talk about it. And hopefully, and luckily I've been in a, you know, a position where although I might be the manager, I can also talk to them about their careers, even if that means they might be moving on. At some stage. So, I think you'd have to be very careful about career choices as well who to join and why you're joining that company and what you're trying to get out of it. Because, you know, the organization landscape changes so frequently. There's rising stars, shooting stars, you know, which create opportunities. There's a lot of, you know, large, very fast growing companies, which are very interesting places to work. But whether they're good places, you know, for a longer term uh, depends on a number of factors. But I think fundamentally, you need to enjoy what you're doing and you need to enjoy the fact that you know, roles are going to change, you're going to have to be flexible, you're going to have to be adaptive, you're going to you know, need to learn new things, new skills, you're going to be thrown in front of a lot of different people, regardless of what sort of treasury you work in, you're dealing with, you know, senior executives, you're dealing with, you know, external providers, particularly banks, inevitably you'll be dealing internally to some extent. So, you know, that flexibility, that desire, that inquisitiveness, I guess, are absolutely critical. But in doing that, you know. And I still do, you know, I wouldn't say every day, but when I'm sitting on the train home, you know, I still think, mm, that's interesting, I learned something today, you know, and it, there's still things I'm learning all the time. In fact, as the world speeds up in so many ways, you know, there's a, there's a lot to learn. Very interesting place to work in Treasury generally.
0: As always, amazing final words there from Stephen Medhurst, Senior VP Treasury at Omnicom. And if you want to connect with Steve, we'll put his LinkedIn details in the show notes, as always summarise what we've spoken about enjoy what you do keep learning every day and if you don't enjoy it or you're not learning that's all right because you can still call us here at the treasury recruitment company more than happy to help and offer our advice so give us a call anytime thank you appreciate the opportunity thanks mike many thanks steve